Welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman and in this episode we'll be talking about pavement plants, hearing about wildflowers and bugs and discovering what a monad is and why it's so exciting. Wildflower Hour takes place every week between 8 and 9pm on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just post photos of the wildflowers you found in bloom during the week using the hashtag Wildflower Hour or in the Wildflower Hour Facebook group. You don't need to know what any wildflowers are. You just need to find them. Now, the weather outside may suggest otherwise, but we are now at the start of the flowering season for many plants, which means we run weekly challenges to encourage you to look for different flowers or visit different habitats. Last week, we had the rosette challenge, which was impressively popular given how many wildflowers are currently buried under several inches of snow. And this week's challenge is pavement plants. Yes, for this challenge, you won't need to do anything other than go for a walk along the roadside near your home or workplace and see what's growing there. It is amazing how many plants manage to eke out a living in places where they were never invited and where there barely seems any soil for them to take root. More amazing still is our ability to miss these plants entirely. We suffer from a curious plant blindness at the best of times, but often we expect only to find wildflowers in officially wild places, like nature reserves. This means we miss out on admiring some of the toughest plants in our native flora. So this week, we want you to have a good long look at what's growing in the pavement cracks. You might come across procumbent pearlwort, which looks like a lump of moss until you look closely and see it has tiny pearly green flowers. Or groundsel, a member of the daisy family, which seems happiest in the most inhospitable environments. In fact, a lot of daisy family members are quite successful on the pavement, as are members of the cabbage family. Whatever you do find in flower, please take a photo of it, even if it means you look a little odd as you crouch down on the pavement to do so, and post it on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag pavementplants, or upload it into the Wildflower Hour Facebook group before 9pm on Sunday the 11th of March. On the subject of urban wildlife, another thing you may have missed is how important wildflowers are for insects in towns and cities. The charity Bug Life knows all about this and has a project called Urban Buzz to try to introduce food sources for bugs and bees back into built-up environments. I spoke to Nick Packham, the Urban Buzz officer at Bug Life, to find out what it entailed. So Nick, just tell me a little bit about what this project involves. Yeah, sure. So Urban Buzz is is a project that's all about creating habitat for pollinators in in urban areas and so we've been tasked with in in four cities across the country well eight in total we've been tasked with creating um a hundred buzzing hotspots and this this will be sites where we are creating pollinator habitat from scratch or where we are working to enhance existing areas that either may have been neglected or we're extending areas of good habitat for pollinators and this can include anything from wildflower planting to woodland spring bowl planting to creating bee banks or butterfly scrapes or um, hoverfly homes or you know a, a number of different nesting opportunities. But I say the majority of the work we do is in some form of planting or another. And, and within that, I'd say that a lot of the work that we do do is probably wildflower planting on open space that's either sort of managed by local authorities or, or other sort of large landowners like universities or uh, colleges or, or, or things like that. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a project that's all about creating habitat, working with local communities to help 
not only create the habitat itself, but to help maintain it and to, we're trying to raise as well the knowledge level and the awareness of the importance of various pollinators that we've got in the in the UK. Like for example, there's nearly 275 different types of bee in the UK and there's well over 200 hoverflies and there's you know, thousands of, of different moth species in the UK. So there's a lot of there's a lot of information out there just on on some of the groups of pollinators that perhaps most people aren't aware of, or you know that they wouldn't come across normally within their day to day life. So urban buzz is all about creating habitat on people's doorsteps where they can appreciate the the colours of it and the and the various different habitats, but also can perhaps learn to. Um, understand and appreciate some of our pollinators a little bit better. And what sort of wildflowers are you planting? Are you trying to create quite sort of naturalistic meadows or are you using those seed mixes? Yes, one of the key outcomes for the project, as I said, is creating a a 100 buzzing hotspots. But within that, we've got specific targets on flagship sites that that tend to need to be around half a hectare in size. And so in looking for these sites, we are looking more further afield into some of our parks or local wildlife sites or other road verges or, or sites that are quite um, open and out towards the countryside or where we've got relatively other key wildlife areas like wildflower meadows or woodland. So, yes, we tend to, in those cases, we tend to plant more native wildflower mixes where we can um, so that yeah, it, it kind of better resembles the the, the kind of countryside effect, and, and it wouldn't sort of in, interfere with with the, the plan is it wouldn't interfere with any of the sort of the surrounding hedgerows or wildflower or woodland areas that are already existing there. So yeah, we we tend to plant where we can native, and in some cases we would use a seed mix for that, or in some cases we would. Um, I mean, previous projects before I've kind of ordered in. Uh, seeds by by the seed as opposed to in a mix and then I've kind of weighed out and mixed out uh, mixes that I'd like myself depending on the site or the the area or the, or the surroundings of where we're going to be planting so yeah I've, I've uh, but I've also again used sort of standard seed mixes native seed mixes from from the box uh, again yeah depending on the site or what the project entails really and what are the best wildflowers for pollinators? There must be some that attract a lot of insects at different stages of their lives. Yeah, so I think that's a good question. And, and from my, our perspective, I mean, one of the things that we look at when we're working on a project like this is that we're, we're trying to do a number of things. We're trying to create habitat, so food uh, for pollinators for as long as we can throughout the season. So we're looking at plants that will give us a long kind of blo- a longer blossom sequence so we'd like things that flower earlier on uh, wildflower plants that flower earlier on in the year so for that we might be looking at some of our woodland species like bluebell or uh, primrose those kind of things but then in in wildflower meadows we might be looking for things like cowslip um, potentially things like yarrow or some of the other more traditional wildflower species that might appear earlier in the year. Then we're also looking for species that might flower later on in the year as well, so that, again, those late flying pollinators, like potentially some of the bumblebee species or you see some of the hoverflies and wasps later on in the year. So for those types of species, we're looking for wildflowers that extend the the season as well. So for that, 
again, we might use uh, late flowering species. Um, Napweed's a late, a later flowering plant, it can do. Um, so yeah, with whatever plants we're looking for, we, we're trying to think of extending the season as much as we can for pollinators. And we're also trying to cater for uh, pollinators that a wide variety of pollinators from, as I said, bumblebees through to hoverflies to butterflies to moths. So we're looking at food plants for, for moths as well as feeding on nectar. And we're also looking at wildflower plants where perhaps umbellifers are quite good. So things like yarrow, wild carrot are good for solitary bees. So they can, they'll be able, they're able to kind of land on the flower and, and spend more time sort of feeding on them. We've got uh, greater knapweeds quite good for bees as well because again it's a strong-headed flower that can where bees bumblebees can land on them and bumblebee species generally tend to like things like yeah, the clovers quite important and and I, I wouldn't want to rule out you know some of the the plants that you see growing on roadsides as well things like dandelion um, and and hogweed they're really good plants for pollinators as well grown. Obviously, they come up naturally and, and are sometimes considered weeds. But again, really good for a wide variety of solitary bees and, and bumblebees tend to like those plants quite well. So I'd say they're, they're quite key. And again, they, they come up along roadsides and in parks and people's gardens and things like that. So they're definitely worth keeping and having around. What sort of a reception have you had to the projects that you've set up? They sound quite pretty as well as useful for pollinators. Yes, I mean we do. We we get quite a lot of good feedback, and and you know the idea, as I said, for the project is to be planting out right on people's doorsteps or in areas of high impact, you know, along road verges, um, for example. And yes, I mean generally we we get a lot of good feedback saying you know we're bringing colour to the area, and you know it's good to see the the parks or the road verges buzzing again, and and and, and in some cases where we're working with I'd say in many cases they're working with local community groups. Um, you know, we're able to engage them a lot more in, in doing bee walks and uh, bug hunts and events like that where, you know, we're bringing people right up close to some of these plants and they're able to identify what they are and see, you know, annual annual plants. Like um, we've done some walks last year where you could see a lot of bumblebees and, and other species flying around on things like poppy and cornflower and, and oxidaisy and things like that and then also later on in the year we were showing them the different types of species that would be using things like birds for trefoil and some of the clovers so it's great to be to be planting this in places that are quite urban where you know a lot of people can benefit them from as i said your parks groups to your scout groups to from your, to your dog walkers or you know anybody that's kind of walking by really and and the road verges projects that we've been working on or have worked on in the past have been obviously helped improve the commuters sort of daily drive by having wildflowers on 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 their routes and journeys and it's yeah i mean we've we've had a lot of good feedback about it and it's that kind of color element to it bringing the almost the countryside into the city almost in a sense because it's a lot of the time you see in cities it's areas can be quite regularly mown and everything seems to be quite neat and green in some cases so bringing that element of color or that wilder element to some of our parks and other open space it it, it has you know it has kind of had a had a good impact on the on the social element to it and how much of a difference does it actually make to insects i mean can you record 
a, a change in population as a result of this planting? Yeah, and we can. And I think there's been you know some studies out there that are confirming that you know all of this planting is worthwhile and you know it, it is making a difference. And in one of the projects that I'm working on at the moment in Leicester, we are actually talking to the local university in in having some monitoring set up on on some of the uh, the, the ring road planting projects that we've got coming up wildflower planting projects to look at just that i mean we we're, we want to collect more data on this to show that yes actually areas that are planted up and quite species rich you know come the spring and summer do show higher not just abundance numbers of the same species but variation of, of species as well so Things like your dandelion and your hogweed, as I said before, are going to be a good start to some of the this open space and letting that grow wild. But then in areas where you can add diversity, like a range of wildflowers, like your yarrows and your um, knapweeds and self-hill and birds for treffle and things like that, you know, a variety of different plant structures, hopefully, yeah, we will attract a, a larger variety of species that have various different needs because, you know, we have... Within a lot of our insects, we have bees, for example. Some of them have shorter tongues, so then they prefer plants, you know, where the nectar is 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 closer for them to access. So they don't, if they don't have longer tongues, they can't access longer plants. And then we have longer tongued bees, like the garden bumblebee, for example, which has a longer tongue and prefers plants like foxglove and and plants like that, where the nectar is buried deeper in the plant. So we plant a variety of different we sow or plant a variety of different plants for catering for a larger number of insects and that in this study that we're looking to do later this year will hopefully confirm some of this and you know we we see it in some of the research that's already out there around different plants and what they attract and we we know generally that yeah planting more encourages more more for bees because the urban buzz project was designed off the back of the as well as other things the national pollinator strategy that identified that in 2014, I think it was, that um, bees and other pollinators have lost over 90% of their habitat since the end of the Second World War. So you know, they've, they've, they've lost a lot of their open foraging land uh, due to farming and housing developments and loss of wildflower meadows and woodland and things like that to land conversion. So, you know, any any kind of planting of native or the kind of plants that are species have grown up our local pollinator species have grown up and adapted to over over millions of years almost is is kind of really useful to be planted again and and, and grown again because our species obviously need that kind of specialist habitat that they're used to that was nick packham from bug life's urban buzz project now if you're listening to this podcast you probably get some sort of buzz out of nature but did you know how exciting monads can be in fact Do you know what a monad is? Ian Truman got in touch to say he gets so much satisfaction from recording in tetrads and monads that he wanted to share his excitement with Wildflower Hour members. I started first by asking him what on earth he was talking about. So Ian, you absolutely love recording in tetrads and monads. And that might sound to some of our listeners a bit like something from Star Wars. So could you explain what they are? Right, well, it's quite simple, really. A tetrad is just a two kilometers square. I mean, what we're talking about is area recording. We're talking about uh, taking an area. It all started with 10 kilometers squares in the 60s. Take an area and you make a list of all the plants in that area if you possibly can. 
when it moved from the, the BSBI Atlas level to local floras, the unit moved down to a two kilometer by two kilometer square. That's a tetrad. But now I think most people begin to realize it's ever so much better to, to have your basic unit to be a one kilometer square, which is a monad. I feel a lot more comfortable in a monad than a tetrad. And as I say, essentially, the idea is to make a, a complete as possible list for that one single particular kilometer square. And uh, it's wonderful fun. It really is. I think it probably it's wired into us genetically, you know, because I think you've got to remember for most of our history, we were hunter-gatherers. And hunter-gatherers needed to know what grew where and... I suspect we're repeating the sort of things that people, human beings, have done ever since there were human beings. In fact, probably before then. So, uh, and uh, you can do it on your own, but it's a lot more fun if you do it with other people. Uh, and the beauty of that, of course, is you're all different. I mean, uh, my friend, the recorder for Staffordshire, has a way of discovering which are the bits of the floor that you particularly do not record very well. But if you've got three or four people there, they tend to cancel them out, you know. So you're all uh, recording to your strengths. The only, the only slightly worrying thing is if you walk out on a circuit and then you come back, you nearly always see stuff that you missed on the way out, which is slightly uh, worrying, but never mind. Um, you can only do what you can do. The other thing is that, is that you can take beginners along with you. It's wonderful for beginners because, I don't know about you, but if you go out, say, on a walk, then if you've got a, a, an eminent botanist or something like that to show you a site, they'll show you the really important, clever, rare species, but they'll very rarely tell you anything about the common species. And if you don't know very much, it's a little bit intimidating to say, what's that? And to have them look at you or worry that they will look at you witheringly and say, oh, it's, that's very common, that's everywhere. You know? uh, whereas if you're doing an area uh, recording, you've got to record everything so that everything that you see has to be recorded at least once so that you learn a lot of the common plants. And, and that's, the, that's the key to becoming a botanist, really, to know your common plants. I have known quite a lot of botanists who only know the rare plants, but I don't think they're very good botanists. <laughs> and how often do you need to record in a monad? Is it something you should do monthly once you've found your, your kilometre square that works for you? Generally speaking, you're working against the clock. And just, I mean... Black Country, which is not a very big area, really, but it's 715 bloody monads. <laughs> and, you know, to cover 715 monads takes some time. So you generally work on the principle that it's a minimum of two visits to a monad, one in the spring and one in the summer. And that's because the spring flora quite often has disappeared by the summer, especially the old woodland flora. Uh, you think of things like wood anemones. You go there in June, they've gone. You can't find them. There's nothing there. No leaves, no nothing. So uh, you've got to go in the spring. On the other hand, an awful lot of stuff is, is, is only at, it's best in the summer. So um, two visits and the minimum. So you start off by looking at your map. And a 1 to 25,000 map is very good. I think Google Earth would be quite useful, although you've got to be a bit careful because if you're recording the field, you can't just go trespassing everywhere. 
I have done it, but it doesn't always work out very nicely. Yeah, I can remember once uh, recording in the uh, in the Welsh borders with uh, Doris Pugh, who was the old recorder for Montgomeryshire in the in in the sixties, and um, she was a local school teacher. And we were trespassing somewhere, and some great big Welsh farmer came bounding out, ready to tear us limb from limb. And he took one look at Doris, who was about five foot, uh, five foot tall, and he turned into a little boy. And and he suddenly started saying, "Yes, Miss Pugh, no, Miss Pugh." Uh, but it doesn't always work out like that. So, generally speaking, stick to public footpaths and and don't be too conspicuous. The other thing is that people do ask you what you're doing. Have you lost something? Is the most common common response, uh, which is great. It's quite difficult to explain what you're doing. I can remember two old gentlemen somewhere near uh, Sutton Park uh, in in uh, a residential area, and they asked us what we were doing in, in their gutter, <laughs> wandering up and down their gutter. Do, do you find, though, that people do get it when they realise that there's quite a lot to see and that actually the discipline of recording in one moment means that as you say, you are looking out for every wildflower and you turn off all sorts of things that you probably haven't noticed, even if you live there and walk past that park, that gutter every single day. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, in, in fact, sometimes it, it it goes too far. I can remember recording quite an interesting plant. I can't even remember what it was now, but it was a ruderal, but it was a, an uncommon ruderal, you know. What's a, a ruderal? A, a, weedy, a weedy plant, but an uncommon one. And I said, oh, we don't often see that. I think it was, I think it was a geranium. And, um, and he, he, he became quite distraught. He said, well, what are we going to do about it? I mean, how, how do we stop people destroying it? You know? And uh, I said, well, it, it doesn't, it, you can't do anything about it, basically. It is a ruderal. It's a plant which takes the opportunity to grow where a bit of bare ground comes up. It's the same with allotment people. I can remember once being found a really nice, um, weed in allotment in Birmingham, and, and the allotment owner said, "Does that mean I can't cultivate it anymore?" <laughs> and I said, "No, that it's there because you cultivate it." You know? So you, you have to explain things at great length sometimes, which does slow you down. However, never mind. You must meet some quite fun and interesting and intrigued people as a result of that though and in terms of the we've talked about the personal satisfaction but there must be a wider reason for doing this other than the desire that some people like you and like I have to, to record things and to find things it must be helpful in a, in a national context as well oh yes yes I've got various bones uh, to pick over that but I mean essentially what you're doing is you're describing the distribution of individual species so that you, for your, the whole area, whatever it may be, the country or the vice county or a conurbation, whatever it is, you're saying, how common is this species in the conurbation? And on the basis of that, you can say lots of things. You, you, in particular, you can say, is it a species we need to worry about? Uh, is it a rare species? Is it a common species? Because it's not always obvious. You know, species become rare and sometimes become commoner. Uh, unexpectedly. I can remember when Buddleia was a rare plant in the middle, and it isn't now. So uh, we've seen that happen, but you don't really need botanical recorders to, to find that out. But you can get a lot more. I mean, these are, once you've done the whole flora, once, once you've got that big database, it's a very powerful database. There's all sorts of things you can do with it. 
one of the things I like to do with it is multivariate analysis, which sounds horrifying, but it, all it means is sorting your monads into kinds. You know, for example, in Birmingham, the black country, we, um, we analyzed the data and we, we found that essentially that there are three sorts of um, uh, monad. There's an industrial monad, there is a, a, a residential mon, monad, and there is a, a green monad. And the green monads aren't always where you expect them to be. I mean, we've got some lovely sites in Birmingham, Black Country. We've got Sutton Park, which is world-class, really. But uh, a, a lot of the green monads, the re really rich monads, are in the post-industrial areas and uh, are where the, the industry's gone. And you're left with very, very poor soils, which can often... Uh, support very large numbers of specialist species. Rich soils tend to be eventually occupied by small numbers of very common species, which competitive species, which take advantage of the richness to, to smother everything else. Nettles, plants like that. What are the specialist species that you can turn up in these in these monads? Well, <laughs> if we're talking about the urban urban areas, yeah, I mean, Grime uh, told us that. Essentially, the three sorts of plant. I mean, these are extremes, really. They're on a, a triangle of sort, as it were, with lots in the middle. Uh, there's the competitive species, which is give it lovely conditions, lots of fertility, lots of moisture, and it swamps everything. You've got the uh, ruderal species, which is the opportunist. You know, you create a bit of bare earth, you dig a grave, and it will start to grow on it. And, uh, and then there are stress tolerators. And the stress tolerators, they don't grow very big, they don't grow very fast, they're not opportunists, they just grimly hang on to a very specialized habitat. And those are the, those are the plants that you're normally looking for. That's the, the rich pieces of, uh, of, of habitat, which is what, what you're also looking for, are where those stress tolerators can flourish. And usually there are situations where there is some age. It, it needn't necessarily be thousands of years, but it, it's going to be some age that it builds up. And there is some problem. Uh, for example, drought, or alternatively, high levels of water, or very low fertility, or shade. These are, these are all stress fa factors, which mean that specialists can live. So that's that's where you get the diversity. I mean, if you, if you want me to go into individual species, well, where do you start? I mean, um, you just never know what you're going to get. I mean, for, I will give you an example. We, uh, I was recording in on a spoil tip in um, in Telford when we were doing the early early, early years of the floor. Now we went there because there was a good common spotted orchids there, but there were also some really horrible bits of almost bare land and I was looking at the orchids and I had a student with me and uh, she said there's a club moss over there and I thought can't possibly be a club moss on this site and but it was it was a stag's horn cl club moss which had only been seen in Shropshire that's the county in one site in in recent years right on the top of the, uh, the hills so I thought I couldn't work out that was so I said I might be planted um, anyway, we went away, and uh, later it transpired there were three different club mosses on this site. Fir club moss, 
Stag's Horn Club Moss, which is a little bit common, and Alpine Club Moss, which at that time had not been seen in Shropshire since the 17th century. Uh, and this was a small tip, and it wasn't even an old one. It turned out it was, a, it was an open-cast coal mine, which had been abandoned in the 1950s. We never did discover how they got there. Um, the best explanation I ever got was from a birder who said that probably it was migrating birds that had brought the spores from maybe the Welsh mountains. Uh, but as I say, you just don't know what's going to happen. But what you do is that when you're planning your survey, you look for situations where things are likely to happen. You look for the wet bits, you look for the streams, and you look for the ponds. And when you're out in the field, you look for bare places, places which are not completely covered in vegetation, because uh, that's where you're likely to get your, your, your stress tolerators and your ruderals, where, where the vegetation is not very, very dense and abundant, and therefore it tends to be dominated by competitive species. Um, but as I say, it, you're learning all the time. I mean, this is, this is the other point, is that I don't know about you, but what I, I love about uh, botany is that you never get to the bottom of it. There's it, always lots more to learn. And uh, I don't know about you again, but uh, that's the most important thing is to carry on learning things. It totally is. It just makes you realise how rich the world is and how you'll never quite be able to master everything that's there because there's always something more that you haven't seen or, or a mutation of something or a new habitat that you haven't really explored. And it makes life much more fun, I think. Now, if somebody is now really keen to develop monad mania and they want to go out recording with a group where do they start who do they who do they contact well this is a very good time at the moment because the botanical society of the british isles did an atlas of the british isles in the 1960s and they did another one round about the turn of the century and it's trying to get one done by 2020 at the moment so everybody's desperately trying to cover the ground your best bet in, in most areas is to try to contact the BSBI recorder. Uh, every, well, we call them vice counties. It's nearly the same as counties, except, of course, Yorkshire's too big, so it's divided into three, so they call vice counties. Has one person who's more or less in charge of recording. And uh, those vice county recorders will be looking for volunteers. And if you go onto the BSBI website, you, you will find your local vice county recorder and his contacts or her contacts. And um, uh, you can find out what's happening. In Birmingham, the black country, if you're interested, uh, uh, we have a Birmingham and black country botanical society. And we, we get out as much as we can. And you can contact those by... Uh, Eco Record, uh, which is based at the, the Wildlife Trust. So, enquiry is at ecorecord.org.uk. Yeah, that's how you get to, to that one. And you can come out with us with pleasure. Um, we love having new people. Uh, we love teaching. I mean, most of us are have been teachers in the past, or some of the ones who haven't been teachers are a lot better teachers, but uh, that's another story. Um, but, uh, we, we're delighted to have people out with us. And don't worry, you won't be intimidated, you won't be sneered at if you don't know anything, <laughs> because it's very important that we should get a new generation of people who are, who are wanting to go out to record, because some of us are getting on a bit, and uh, we've got to have people to carry on the, the process. That was Ian Truman on the joys of recording in monads and tetrads.
And that's all for this week's episode. Don't forget to take part in the next Wildflower Hour on Sunday between 8 and 9pm. And do have a go at our Pavement Plants Challenge. Or take your children out to try March's Herbology Hunt Spotter Sheet, which is online now. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.